The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. because of the the kind of political polarization we're seeing in this era of geopolitical competition because of the 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 explosion of conflicts involving all kinds of dehumanization often on both sides i think we 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 are seeing uh, great pressure on the human rights system generally uh, and uh, you know in those bits of human rights which are most sensitive and most difficult like like counterterrorism and you know uh, states seeing themselves as responsible for the security of their citizens and protecting the you know the lives of of, of their citizens um, it can be very hard to get that message to stick that the best way to ensure security is to protect the human rights of, of your citizens i'm hayman han associate editor at lawfare This is the Lawfare podcast for December 14th, 2023. Ben Saul is the Chalice Professor of International Law at the University of Sydney, Australia, whose internationally recognized work has focused specifically on the intersection of human rights, terrorism, and international law. The United Nations Human Rights Council voted to appoint Saul as the newest special rapporteur on the promotion and protection of human rights and fundamental freedoms while countering terrorism which has become one of the most visible and urgent special rapporteur mandates at the Human Rights Council. He began his three-year tenure, which can be extended to six years, on November 1st, 2023. I sat down with Saul for an interview about his priorities for his tenure, the intellectual frameworks and perspectives he brings to his role, and to get his perspective as special rapporteur on the ongoing Israel-Hamas war. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 14th a new United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Counterterrorism. For those who may not be familiar, could you walk us through who the United Nations Human Rights Council's Special Rapporteurs are generally and what they do? So the Special Rapporteurs are are part of what the UN calls Special Procedures, which are a series of essentially independent experts uh, appointed by the Council Uh, on particular thematic areas uh, like uh, counterterrorism for me uh, or geographic areas. Uh, I mean, the role of special rapporteurs is is really to uh, promote human rights in relation to the the theme or country that they they work on. Uh, There are a a few core things that that they do. So firstly, um, uh, a couple of reports each year, uh, one to the, the Human Rights Council, 
one to the General Assembly of about 12,000 words uh, on some kind of contemporary uh, thematic uh, human rights issue related to the, the particular mandate. And those reports are, are also uh, written on the basis of stakeholder input. So it's a, a pretty uh, open and collaborative process uh, as well. Uh, secondly, uh, we undertake two official country visits each year, which is uh, designed to be a kind of deep dive uh, into uh, human rights in a in a particular country, and then reports are written uh, off the back of that and and made public through the UN as well. Um, thirdly, we deal with what are called communications, which uh, are things where you know every week we might get complaints from individuals or groups or civil society organizations uh, about, uh, in my area, how counterterrorism law has been affecting human rights because somebody's been locked up or their family members have been executed or uh, an NGO is being uh, shut down by excessive counterterrorism laws. Uh, And we engage with governments uh, and try to advocate quietly through diplomacy uh, to improve the situation. If that's not possible, then we we can reserve the right to, to go public and try to mobilise uh, and advocate that way. In addition, on, on this mandate, uh, I'd say there's also uh, a lot of work around the UN counterterrorism architecture in New York, which has proliferated over the last 20 years. And you started to touch on this a little bit, but can you tell us at a high level what your articulation of this specific human rights and counterterrorism mandate is and what it's meant to achieve? Yeah, so I think the the, the uh, essential aim is to ensure that uh, states, uh, United Nations bodies, regional organizations uh, respect international human rights obligations when engaging in counterterrorism activities. So that includes um, policing and law enforcement, intelligence and security, uh, military operations, social and community activities, you know, uh, these kinds of activities to prevent and counter violent extremism, for example, which involve all kinds of interventions at different levels of society. You know, obviously, international law applies uh, when countering terrorism, that's a point that's been ref- affirmed uh, multiple times by even the UN Security Council uh, when it requires states to do things to, to counter terrorism yeah, in its in its resolutions. Uh, but of course, the problem is in this area uh, there's a, a tendency of too many states and even sometimes in the UN system. Uh, to prioritise security over everything else, to not take into account sufficiently the human rights impacts of uh, what can be often very intrusive uh, measures to to counter terrorism. Right. And you recently released your potential areas of focus within this very wide mandate for your three-year term, which included five new potential focuses in addition to building on some of the priorities that the outgoing special rapporteur in this realm, Fanula Neolan, focused on during her tenure. Could we maybe start with your assessment of the state of the issues that she worked on, what she's leaving you with, and what you're most interested in building on within that set of issues? The mandate is actually a fairly mature one in a way. I mean, it was established uh, over 18 years ago now. There have been, well, I'm the fourth special rapporteur on, on this mandate and um, the, the term generally is three years plus uh, another three years, so up to up to six years potentially. 
obviously over that time, uh, a lot of the kind of obvious human rights issues have been addressed by by my predecessors. I mean, most of the uh, impact of counterterrorism law on particular civil and political rights, economic, social, cultural rights, uh, have been dealt with uh, in thematic reports, and that's that's incredibly valuable because it gives me a great resource to fall back on when those issues come up on a day to day basis uh, with states. We can, you know, we can we can uh, fall back on this great body of work, which has already been done. Obviously, some of the work is also pretty reactive, uh, right? So, uh, initially, in response to nine eleven, way back in two thousand and one. Then, of course, you know, Security Council resolutions require states to to do other things in response to to uh, subsequent terrorism episodes. Uh, obviously, around twenty twelve and 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 after that, uh, the threat of ISIS, Islamic State, provoked a, a, a new flurry of of counterterrorism lawmaking on foreign fighters and and, and so on. Uh, so when all of that that stuff comes up, uh, obviously part of the job is is to react to that, and that generates a, a whole lot of new work. Uh, some of the the key issues which Fanula had been working on, which I, I absolutely would like to keep working on, uh, are things like the impact of counterterrorism laws on civil society, opportunities for civil society to participate in United Nations and regional counterterrorism processes. Um, the repatriation of foreign fighters from Syria. Uh, I mean, there are thousands of, of uh, foreign fighters, their families uh, and children still stuck in detention in northeastern Syria, uh, and their states of nationalities are, are often largely washing their hands of their of their plight, even though they're subject to uh, arbitrary indefinite detention, uh, torture or cruel and human treatment, complete absence of due process or any meaningful judicial safeguards. I should say it's not only the foreign fighters. I mean, my concern also is for members of ISIS, you know, like male fighters who are detained uh, as well, uh, because there are there are many thousands of them, mainly Syrians and and Iraqis, but other nationalities as well. Uh, and we're talking, I mean, overall in terms of the families, the children, the, the fighters. I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of of, of people in indefinite detention in incredibly cruel conditions. Uh, return of Guantanamo uh, Bay detainees, I and mean, there are about 30 of them still left after two decades. It's not just those who are still left we need solutions for, but uh, some of those have been transferred but are at risk of, uh, for example, reformant to persecution or, or uh, death or torture uh, in their own countries of nationality. So there's a, a considerable concern about, about those as well. Uh, new technologies is a is an important one. Fanula was working on spyware, artificial intelligence. Uh, I think a, a long way to go on the regulation of those issues, so far as they affect uh, the counterterrorism field. And then uh, an important part of the mandate, which has always been there, is victims of terrorism. Uh, so we focus not only on victims of excessive state counterterrorism measures and violations by states, uh, but also the uh, adverse impacts of terrorist acts themselves on human rights and 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 the the need to support the victims of uh, of those violations as well. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for giving us an overview of that. I want to ask you a follow-up on a few of those, particularly the um, new technologies question, which I think is a relatively new question 
that was explored under the mandate. How are you going to start approaching that question in particular? So we, we would definitely uh, like to issue a follow-up report to Fanula's report, my predecessor, on on spyware. So uh, her spyware report had sort of set out the the, the effects of the the use of spyware on not only terrorists and and, and people who are uh, security risks, but in terms of how that you know adversely impacts on a whole society, civil society, uh, entirely you know innocent human rights protected uh, activities. Uh, and in that report, she was she was really trying to uh, scope out the the different approaches potentially to. Uh, regulation of the use of of spyware, uh, and and that report didn't set down any particular model of of regulation as such. Uh, so it was really left to a, a kind of sequel report uh, to think about what that that model of of regulation should look like. Now, Fanula um, tentatively pointed to a, a kind of liability based model. Uh, and so I think that's what we we would be hoping to explore in the in the second report. Uh, I'm only a few weeks into to, to my role, and obviously have been swamped with uh, a, a huge amount of information about a, a ton of issues. And and we have a a dedicated staff member, a senior legal advisor, who'll be working on uh, the spyware issue when she uh, comes back and, and starts in the in the new year. Great to know that there's someone specific who's going to be working on this. Relatedly, as as a follow-up, the North Syria visit that Fanula made, as well as the Guantanamo Bay visit that she made, do you plan to visit those places again as well? Uh, yeah, so uh, at this stage, I'm uh, thinking about my geographic priorities. So uh, Fanula had focused uh, a lot on... Particularly, I mean, in terms of official country visit, she'd focused uh, on Europe and Central Asia significantly, uh, as well as what we call technical visits. So uh, the, the visit to Syria and Guantanamo Bay are, are kind of not full-blown country visits, looking at the the whole uh, scene of counterterrorism law in the in the country, but are kind of deep diving into into particular issues. So in terms of geography, uh, I mean, I'm in Australia, which is, uh, I think, part of uh, Asia, and Asia is a, a, a huge and underexplored region in terms of human rights scrutiny of, of counterterrorism. Uh, so that's going to be one priority for me. West Africa is a, is another one because that is an epicentre of a, a lot of terrorism and counterterrorism activity uh, at the moment. Uh, and then, of course, the, the, the Middle East. Northeast Syria is a is a is a big and important one for me. Fanula gained access to some of the places of detention, uh, but couldn't get access to to others. In particular, where the the, the male foreign fighters were being detained, she, she wasn't able to access those camps. So that would would certainly be one which I'd be interested to to follow up on. Likewise, on the other side of the the border, uh, Iraq obviously has been dealing. Uh, with the fallout of Islamic State and uh, detention of, of fighters, uh, rehabilitation, uh, etc. Uh, so that's a, a, a big part of the, the story as well. Look, these, these visits depend entirely on the consent of the states concerned. So in relation to northeast Syria, 
um, Fanula had the consent of the Syrian authorities who cooperated with that visit, as well as cooperating with the the, 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 the Kurdish authorities, the de facto uh, administering, detaining power in, in, in that region. So look, that's something which, you know, I'd have to negotiate with the, the states concerned, whether that's the, you know, the US for Guantanamo or, or uh, Syria and others in relation to northeast Syria. And these negotiations, can you just give us a sense of how they happen and what they look like? Do you do you email someone saying that you have an interest in performing a technical visit or doing a, a wider country visit, and then they have to, you know, you have to liaise for for months and months, and then you you might get it an okay? Or how how does this process actually just work? So it is a, a, a fairly involved process. Uh, so some countries have issued what we call standing invitations to the special procedures, which means that they've given a kind of, at a, at a very high level, a kind of general uh, consent to these visits. Uh, but even then, um, you've still got to negotiate the specific visit with, uh, with the country when a particular mandate wants to, to go there. Um, and so, you know, that, that kind of high level yes doesn't necessarily translate into a, a, an actual yes uh, for a particular mandate. You know, counterterrorism is, of course, one of the uh, most sensitive mandates on, on human rights for many countries. Uh, so it is, you know, it is hard to get those consents if, you know, if countries fear that they uh, that their human rights performance might be exposed, or that they, you know, they don't, they don't want certain practices to be to be ventilated publicly, because of course th- these visits that the reporting is public. Uh, I mean, it's not like communications on individual cases where that can be dealt with more quietly or diplomatically. Country visits are, uh, you know, are, are, are an open, transparent process for for everybody everybody to see. You know, I, I don't think it should be seen as threatening by states because, you know, my approach and the approach of many special procedures is we, you know, we, we want to be constructive. We, we want to give credit where credit's due for positive practices in countering terrorism uh, and where there, where there might be deficiencies. It's not uh, a question of naming and shaming so much as uh, trying to work constructively with that state to identify areas for improvement um, suggest good practices that that you know we can bring to the table based on uh, our experience across other countries' situations, our, our, our knowledge of of standards and, and good practices elsewhere, uh, and to try to help them you know lift their game in a in a in a really in a really constructive way. Now, obviously, that that goes both ways. I mean, if a, if a government has no interest in constructively improving their human rights performance, then there are you know limits to what that kind of uh, engagement can achieve, and and there you know at that point might be a absolutely a, a place for uh, more public exposure of of, uh, of of what they're what they're doing. Um, we we have rules about country visits, which mean that we can uh, you know we we, we have to agree certain modalities of the visit with the country uh, so that, for example, you know, if we want to talk to a detainee, a, a terrorist suspect or some other detainee um, in, a, in a prison or a detention facility, uh, you know, that can't be monitored by the state. I mean, the detainee has to be uh, able to, to speak freely to us, that there should be no risk of reprisal for, for talking to us. Uh, and there are just some countries where, you know, those kinds of minimum uh, conditions cannot be guaranteed. So even if a country 
were to say yes, uh, we might say no because it, it just wouldn't meet the the, the basic uh, uh, standards of a of a visit. So in terms of the practicalities, normally you know we, we wouldn't normally just uh, you know cold call or cold email a, a country. We, we'd um, you know we'd meet with the ambassador in in Geneva as a as a courtesy. We'd explain what the you know what the purpose of the visit is why you know perhaps why we've selected their country as as being of interest what would be the kinds of things we'd like to do in that country in terms of who we might want to talk to where we might want to visit what would be the the kind of themes we we might be focusing on they've obviously got to take that back to their their foreign ministries um at home the foreign ministry isn't necessarily calling the shots i mean most of the time it's probably not i mean in, in many countries the foreign ministry might be well disposed towards a, a visit but then they they might talk to security agencies or law enforcement interior ministries etc and then they might not be so keen and because they've got usually more weight than a foreign ministry the answer you know would, would come back as a as a no um, the final thing i'd say is you know even if you get a, a yes in principle translating that into specific dates where you can actually visit can also be a, a considerable source of delay. And there are lots of reasons for that. I mean, it could be uh, security, instability and conflict related. It could be change of government related. It could be lack of resources and manpower on the government side to, to just, you know, logistically organise a, a visit. There, there can be difficulties on the UN side in terms of resourcing and security and, and so on. Um, so you know, it, it is a, a pretty involved uh, involved process for sure. Yeah, definitely. It, but it also does seem like one of the most important things that the special rapporteur can do is just being in the places that are unavailable to the public. That's right, and and uh, I mean also for from you know the perspective of countries, th- there are of course a significant number of special rapporteurs. So one factor is also just trying to kind of coordinate with other special rapporteurs so that, you know, the same country is not being visited by, you know, 10 special rapporteurs in the same year uh, so that there's not that kind of fatigue and that each of us when we visit is is genuinely doing something new or, or, or adding value to human rights scrutiny, which others among us haven't, you know, recently done in the same country. Right. Another aspect of Fanula's work that you said that you wanted to continue working on is the interaction between counterterrorism law and international humanitarian law and and peace operations. Can you talk a little bit more about what gaps currently exist from your perspective in in those two realms? So I think there are a a number of kind of key problems uh, which arise there. So I mean, one of the one of the at a practical level, one which uh, many have been concerned about in in recent years, of course, is uh, the impact of counterterrorism laws on humanitarian relief and humanitarian action, humanitarian operations uh, in conflict areas. So uh, that could be uh, counterterrorist financing laws uh, dealing with the the regulation of non-profit organizations or, or, or charities and the, the you know the, the financial and banking system writ large which can prevent uh, funds or resources being moved into areas of acute civilian need under under conflict conditions uh, so you know if you're raising money for for uh, you know let's say you're a, um, a diaspora community trying to raise money, 
for your your you know your your fellow nationals in a in a foreign country affected by by war, you know for for food aid or or medicine or, or medical relief or whatever. Um, the problem has been counterterrorism law has increasingly impinged on the ability to do that uh, because of legitimate concerns about financing of you know armed or, or terrorist uh, groups in some of those some of those conflicts. Uh, but it's often had a, a really disproportionate impact because counterterrorism laws have been so strict, so absolute, lacking in exceptions for for genuine humanitarian relief, even when that's lawfully permitted under international humanitarian law applicable in armed conflict or admissible under human rights law. That's been you know shut off by by counterterrorism laws, even if it's not uh, strictly made illegal. Uh, there's also been the problem of banks and financial institutions de-risking, which means uh, they just they just don't want the hassle of of uh, compliance problems or regulatory problems with uh, counterterrorism enforcement authorities. So they just that they just get out of the business of dealing with accounts or transactions which go into particular areas uh, of uh, of conflict, um, and so that again can impact on on humanitarian operations. Uh, now there have been some improvements. So the you know in recent times the Security Council passed a resolution which contained a humanitarian exemption from its counterterrorism sanctions regime, and that's a good thing. Increasingly, uh, numbers of states have duly implemented that in in domestic law. There's a long way to go on that because lots of countries haven't implemented it yet or haven't implemented it. Uh, in its in its full scope, uh, but that's only part of the problem, of course, because that that's only an exemption to economic or financial sanctions. Um, it's not an exemption to criminal law liabilities, like, for example, financing terrorism, providing uh, support or material support to terrorism, uh, associating with a terrorist organization. I mean, I mean, there's such a plethora of criminal offences related to terrorist organisations in many countries, uh, and many of them do not have a humanitarian or medical exemption for, for, for armed conflict. Um, so that's a real problem. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not so much a problem for multilateral organisations or international bodies like uh, UN actors or, or, or uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross who might have immunity under international law from national uh, criminal law in, in foreign domestic courts. Uh, but it is a massive problem for lots of their partner NGOs, their implementing partners and so on, uh, who are still captured by national law, who don't have the, the same uh, the same uh, uh, immunities. So that's one part of the problem. The, the second part I, I, I'd mention, you know, just, just goes back to the, the really fundamental problem of the lack of an international definition of terrorism. Uh, so the Security Council has required all countries to implement such a wide-ranging list of measures to counter terrorism, uh, but hasn't solved this fundamental puzzle of whether uh, violence in armed conflict counts as terrorism or not, right? And so under the, you know, many of the counterterrorism treaties, so-called counterterrorism treaties dealing with particular methods or manifestations of terrorism, you know, going back to the, the, the 1970s, 
uh, many of them do have carve-outs or exceptions for uh, certain violence committed in armed conflict. In other words, war is not treated as terrorism, uh, not because you know terrorist violence against civilians can't happen in, in war, but because international humanitarian law already exists to uh, regulate that field in a, in a really comprehensive way. So if you deliberately murder civilians or take hostages. I mean, all of those things are already war crimes uh, under the under the law of armed conflict. So there's just no need to tack on a whole additional layer of counterterrorism liability be, beyond that. Uh, and I think where, you know, we, we see that play out uh, in, a, in a whole range of conflicts where some groups of states regard a, an armed group in armed conflict uh, as a terrorist organisation. Uh, other groups of states don't treat it uh, that way. Um, and that, you know, that, that makes it uh, really difficult in, in how we think about uh, what's going on in, in armed conflict when, you know, different groups of states are, 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 are seeking to regulate it in quite different ways. Yeah, definitely. And you, you are, of course, the person who literally wrote the book on defining terrorism in international law. So in addition to the work that you've done, for instance, for the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime, what more work is there to be done in this realm and, and how is it going to interact with what you bring to the role as special rapporteur for counterterrorism and human rights? Well, I, I wrote that book on defining terrorism uh, about 20 years ago and sadly states have not listened <laughs> because there still is no definition of, of terrorism. Uh, I mean, of course, there has been a, an ongoing treaty negotiation uh, within the, the General Assembly since uh, about 2000, 2001, the, the so-called UN Draft Comprehensive Counterterrorism Treaty. Uh, a lot of progress was made on that in the first couple of years, and then it completely stalled not so much on the in inclusive part of the definition, but on the exclusion. So in, in relation to how much state violence uh, should or should not count uh, under a terrorism definition, uh, as well as uh, regulation, and this is the the, the big one, of course, uh, how we regulate conflicts involving self-determination, national liberation, resistance in situations of occupation, uh, you know, Palestine, Kashmir. I mean, these are these are the kind of uh, obvious ones. And so, since then, it's it's really been stalled on on that question. That that in recent years, it's it's been pretty moribund. I mean, there's there's not been uh, any progress really to, to to speak of on that question. Now, in some ways, um, uh, that 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 problem of defining terrorism, which you know the world's been dealing with for over over a century, actually, um, has been circumvented by uh, what the Security Council did after 9-11, which is to require by a binding Security Council resolution, 1373, back in 2001, to require all countries to uh, criminalise, prevent, suppress in domestic law terrorist acts, but without giving any kind of binding operative definition of terrorism. Now, because they didn't define terrorism, that's, that's what made it possible to pass that resolution. Um, states were generally happy with it and have complied with it because it's, you know, it's it's allowed them the freedom to choose uh, whatever definition they like of terrorism under domestic law. Um, now, the Security Council has said, well, you know, of course, that's got to comply with with human rights law, but uh, we know in, in many cases those definitions are, are, are utterly non-compliant with human rights law. They they don't necessarily 
meet the, the, the principle of legality in, in terms of being sufficiently precise and certain to allow uh, individuals to prospectively know the scope of their criminal liability. Uh, in some cases, they're discriminatory. In some cases, they impact on protected civil and political uh, freedoms. Uh, and even if they, you know, even if definitions are compliant, I mean, there's then, of course, the, the, the further problem of how they're abusively used in practice. Uh, in societies with uh, potentially weak judicial controls and uh, uh, very powerful security agencies, indefinite and or preventive pretrial detention, which goes on for years. Uh, I mean, all of that, you know, then then springs from, from, from bad definitions. Uh, the Security Council in, in 2004 did adopt a... Um, a resolution 1566, which gave a kind of guiding working definition of terrorism, which is reasonably uh, human rights respecting and has been endorsed by by my predecessors as a as a kind of quite good guideline. Uh, the problem is, you know, most states ha- haven't legislated in accordance with that definition. Um, also, you know, so far as we can tell. Um, you know, when UN counterterrorism bodies like the the counterterrorism executive directorate uh, does its assessments of countries' human rights performance, they 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 certainly look at countries' definitions, but because those processes are are, are just not transparent. I mean, there are, there are, there are reports by CTED, the, the the executive directorate, of its country missions are not made public unless uh, a government agrees to that, and most governments uh, never agree to that being public. Uh, so we, we just can't see to what extent the UN counterterrorism bodies are seriously pushing back against terrible rights disrespecting uh, definitions of, uh, of terrorism. Um, and the problem seems to be that, uh, you know, if you've got a bad definition of terrorism, it's not just the fact that 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 the definition itself is bad if you then go on to uh, prosecute someone for committing terrorism. Uh, actually, the bigger problem is usually that a whole lot of other counterterrorism measures spring from that definition. Uh, so all of the kind of deep-reaching uh, preparatory offences to terrorism, which are uh, unlike what we, we usually have in, in regular criminal law contexts, uh, offences relating to terrorist organisations, uh, measures relating to preventing or countering uh, violent uh, extremism, preparatory to terrorism, e- even you know, you know measures of, of of surveillance, security control, administrative uh, restrictions on on liberty. Um, uh, so you know it has a compounding effect. You have a bad definition, and then you've got all kinds of bad measures which which flow from that. You put it all together, and it it ends up looking uh, looking pretty terrible. Uh, so I think. You know this this failure to define terrorism is is at the root of a lot of the the really abusive counterterrorism practices we've seen over the last twenty years. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box, and if you break it down, it really comes out to two dollars a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work 
of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate delete me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So just to round out the discussion of your priorities for this mandate, you, in addition to what we've just gone over, identified five new potential areas of focus as well. Could you run us through the ones that you're most interested in focusing on from that list? I think you also might have received comments from international stakeholders on what they would want you to focus on as well. Is that right? That's right. Yes. So uh, I, I had a call for inputs to stakeholders and I'm, I'm pleased to say there's been a, a huge interest in that and uh, I'll be wading through those submissions in, in coming weeks uh, in preparing my, my first report for the council in, in March next year, but which is due in December. The, the first one, um, which I think will be the subject of my first report to the General Assembly in October next year, is on the impact of counterterrorism measures by regional organisations on human rights. So there's been a lot of scrutiny of both state human rights performance and performance uh, by UN human rights bodies in New York. But in some ways, regional organisations have slipped under the radar and haven't had so much human rights scrutiny. They've been around and doing counterterrorism for a very long time, I mean, way back since the the 1970s. But the, the number of organizations has proliferated. I mean, there are dozens and dozens of them now which are involved in counterterrorism, but also uh, in in terms of what they've been doing. It's not just um, occasional treaty making like uh, in the past before 9-11. It's a a proliferation of measures across all kinds of areas. So um, that's number one. And and by regional organizations, I, I mean, you know, highly structured institutionalized ones that we're familiar with, like you know, the European Union or the, the Council of Europe or, you know, the African Union, etc. cetera, uh, but also informal networks like the Global Counterterrorism Forum, uh, the Financial Action Task Force, um, uh, and in the military domain as well. I mean, there are, there are coalitions of military actors uh, like in the Lake Chad Basin or the Global Coalition Against ISIS, Daesh, um, I mean, those are, are, are ripe for much greater scrutiny as well. Um, secondly, uh, I'm interested in the involvement of non-state actors in counterterrorism. So that could be uh, private companies providing security-related goods uh, and services, including, you know, we mentioned spyware already. It also includes private military and security contractors, so groups like uh, Wagner involved increasingly in, uh, in West Africa, uh, but also uh, non-state armed groups, which are uh, essentially de facto state authorities. So, again, we mentioned um, the Kurdish authorities in, in northeast and Syria. What are their human rights obligations in countering terrorism? And what are the obligations of the states which cooperate with them in activities to combat uh, ISIS and other armed groups? 
Thirdly, and this has been you know a, a theme of interest to previous rapporteurs as well, but there's there's so much of this. I think it's worth looking at it holistically. Um, that is this explosion of uh, what we call administrative measures to counter terrorism. So things which uh, sit often outside the regular criminal justice system or even entirely outside the regular civil court system, uh, but which nonetheless impose all kinds of restrictions on liberty and and freedom uh, in countering terrorism. So they could be things like uh, preventive detention orders, control orders, keeping people in prison even after they even after they've served their sentence for a criminal conviction because they're they're seen to be still risks to to security uh, a ton of border and migration related measures travel restrictions uh, exclusion orders citizenship stripping data sharing in relation to travel etc prescription of organizations as terrorist uh, for all kinds of measures, uh, whether that's financial restrictions, travel restrictions, dissolution, etc. And then measures to prevent uh, and counter violent extremism, which involve all kinds of often soft, but not so soft measures that prevent or disrupt that kind of radicalization process. Um, Fourthly, uh, I'm interested in some some of the counterterrorism work of particular uh, specialized international bodies like the International Maritime Organization in, in the field of maritime security uh, and the International Civil Aviation Organization. Again, actors which have long been involved in counterterrorism way back since the, the 1970s and 80s, but which are doing a, a lot more now uh, beyond their conventional role in participatory, transparent, you know, criminal law treaty making, which was their, their uh, original role. Uh, and the final one is Focusing on uh, accountability and reparation for large-scale violations of human rights in countering terrorism. Um, so I think uh, uh, there are good practices here to, 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 be, to be ventilated, like uh, I think the Colombian peace process is quite a good example where uh, there has been a genuine commitment to combating impunity, to, to truth-telling, reconciliation, compensation. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, Think of a, a place like Sri Lanka, where there's been almost total impunity for large-scale massacres of civilians at the end of the civil war uh, in the uh, in the 2000s. Uh, so, looking at how the framing of of uh, conflicts as counterterrorism affects the way we deal with them uh, in a in a post-conflict transition, I, I think is uh, is useful. We mentioned Guantanamo Bay already. I mean, again, the focus there has often been on, uh, you know, for obvious humanitarian reasons, you know, getting people out of indefinite detention for, you know, for over two decades and, and protecting people when they have been transferred from, from risks. But of course, the other part of that story is, again, a near complete absence of uh, any meaningful accountability for really serious violations perpetrated uh, seemingly by the United States uh, in the war on terror um, uh, in terms of torture, detention conditions, uh, unfair trials potentially constituting war crimes. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a, a whole story of impunity there which I, I don't think we can forget about, also because of, you know, the role of the United States. I, I mean, it... it uh, it is a leader. It, it has an outsized influence on shaping how other states feel it's acceptable to behave in countering terrorism. So, if you have, you know, if you have impunity at the top, 
of course, we must expect that you know other states will feel free to copy that kind of behavior. I wish we had an endless time so that I could go into each of those five things, but for the sake of time, I'll, I'll limit one follow-up about the the point you raise about proliferation of administrative measures to counter terrorism, and, and you raise, for instance, designating terrorist organizations as such. In Australia, you had made headlines for advocating that Hamas and the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, would not be able to be designated as terrorist organizations under domestic Australian law without going you know, too far into the ins and outs of Australian law. Wh- what moved you to make that point? And can you briefly outline what the problems are with things like terrorism designations, for instance? I think that's something that a lot of people are aware of, and it's a mechanism that a lot of countries use yeah, so on the, on the question of designation generally, uh, I mean, it can be potentially a, a useful device for containing the threat of terrorism. The, the problem is usually the way it's done, right? So uh, it, there can be a, a lack of adequate due process and a lack of judicial safeguards that then uh, make it suspect from a, a human rights standpoint. Uh, on, the, on the two examples you gave, I mean, they're, they're both different, right? So the uh, revolutionary guards in Iran, the problem there under Australian law, and, and, and I should say not only under Australian law, I mean, this is a pretty common approach uh, in many countries' national counterterrorism laws, uh, is that the revolutionary guards is, is part of the Iranian state. And and most, and, and I mean, this goes to our discussion of the definition of terrorism, uh, you know, many countries' laws regard terrorism as a kind of non-state phenomenon, right? So although at a criminal law level, you know, any individual can be liable for committing terrorism. So, you know, a state official who, who takes hostages on, a, on an aircraft, um, you know, still commits a terrorist offence. But in terms of the prescription of organisations as, as terrorists, uh, Australian law and, and many other laws don't recognise, you know, th- that, that you could designate part of a foreign state uh, as, a, as a terrorist organisation. I mean, that goes back to the the, the long debate about terrorism, you know, the, the, the conventional wisdom on this was that um, state violence is already adequately addressed by other areas of international law. So if the state commits illegal violence, you know, it could be a prohibited use of force under the UN Charter, it could be a violation of international humanitarian law or international human rights law, uh, and therefore you, you, do, you just don't need to uh, additionally classify that as terrorism. Now, there are, you know, there may be all kinds of, of problems with that, conceptually and, and morally and, and whatever. But the but the other point is a, is a more practical one, which is, um, you know, states have foreign state immunity before other states' domestic courts, right? Um, so if the, the point, uh, and this goes to the debate in, in Australia, if the point about declaring the Revolutionary Guards as a terrorist organisation is to trigger the criminal law offences hanging off that designation, um, well, that's that's totally inoperable because you you know you, you you simply cannot prosecute a member of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards for a, a terrorist offence before Australian courts because that's a, a state actor with state immunity and we know that under the law of state immunity there is no exception for you know terrorist offences under domestic law so so you know that's that's the the immediate problem i mean of course you 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 could potentially change your law uh, but then you know the question is where do you stop, right? Uh, I mean, so many states use violence uh, against their 
political adversaries, assassinating people they don't like in foreign states, conducting military operations uh, in foreign states. And if, as we said, national law definitions also don't exempt armed conflict governed by humanitarian law from definitions of terrorism, it suddenly means that any state involved in military violence anywhere in the world could be subject to a, a terrorist organisation under Australian law or some other other state's law. So it's, it starts to become very difficult in terms of the uh, diplomatic and political consequences of of treating you know bits of foreign states as as terrorist groups. Uh, in relation to Hamas, just briefly on that one, yeah. Uh, again, I mean, this was a debate about. Uh, so Australia uh, had had long listed the, the 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 military wing of Hamas as terrorist. It then moved last year to also list the civil part. So in other words, the whole of the of the Hamas organization. Uh, including its, you know, civil administration and governance of the of the Gaza Strip, uh, as a as a terrorist organisation. So um, the 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 objection, the legal objection, I was I was making based on on uh, what we said earlier about the need to protect humanitarian relief and so on in in armed conflict, was not that was not an objection to whether Hamas should or shouldn't be uh, regarded as terrorist or not. My objection was that uh, if you do list it under Australian law as terrorist, it then triggers all of these very excessive rights-infringing criminal offences relating to involvement with Hamas as an organisation. And when an organisation is essentially de facto government doing all kinds of civil, civilian things and things for, you know, to to administer civilian life um, in that territory, totally unrelated to, you know, using violence at all, that, that becomes a problem because, you know, people who collect the garbage for the Hamas administration are suddenly liable as uh, either members of or associates with Hamas as a terrorist organisation under Australian law. So the problem is the the, the, the breadth of the offences, the fact that the offences aren't targeting uh, conduct which is in any way harmful in terms of the commission of terrorist violence. And uh, more than that, uh, are directly impinging uh, upon the ability to provide basic needs for uh, civilians in Gaza, including, you know, food and, and medicine and healthcare and, and so on, because all of those things uh, are potentially criminal. Uh, and again, because of a lack of exceptions for humanitarian relief in criminal in, in the criminal sphere, that the uh, severe effects of those offences are not moderated as they should be in line with humanitarian law. We've already kind of talked about your scholarly work on defining terrorism and how that provides a framework for how you're approaching these problems. You also wrote, I thought it was really interesting in your application for this position, that one of the things you were interested in doing was strengthening a culture of respect for human rights encountering terrorism within civil society, specifically as it pertains to the rights of the groups or individuals labeled as terrorists. Can you talk a little bit more about where that kind of view comes from, how how you developed it? I mean, for instance, you and I um, first met last year when you were writing a piece for Lawfare titled The Unlawful U.S. Killing of Ayman al-Zawahiri, who was an al-Qaeda leader, of course, that the U.S. performed a targeted killing of. Look, I think it's 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 really hard to uh, promote respect for human rights of people, states accused of being terrorist suspects. Right? Uh, I mean, they're they're incredibly unpopular. There's no political constituency which really advocates uh, for them. 
there are you know some really dedicated devoted ngos and in civil society and and, and lawyers and and family members and so on you know which which of course mobilize and advocate uh, very powerfully on on particular you know issues or or, or themes but i think um you know 9/11 followed by uh, the threat of ISIS after after 2012 um, has just kind of reinforced this I- incredibly powerful uh, security at all costs narrative. I mean, I think we're seeing this play out in the the Israel uh, Gaza conflict uh, at the moment uh, as well, which is which has really put so much pressure on on human rights. And although the Security Council. Um, uh, and states, you know, of course, mouth formal commitments to protecting, promoting human rights in in countering terrorism, that that just isn't reflected in the kinds of resourcing uh, devoted to human rights in in this area, right? So, you know, it's it's um, uh, security agencies, intelligence agencies, militaries being given massive amounts of new resources over the last twenty years, while human rights have have received very little are are massively under-resourced don't have anything like the same kind of institutional capacity uh, to feed into the formulation and application of counterterrorism uh, laws and practices i think we we see that also at the un level i mean between the office of counterterrorism and the the counterterrorism executive directorate you know there are hundreds of of staff with huge you know 100 million dollar budgets whereas you know my office of the special rapporteur on human rights and counterterrorism is me half time so like two and a half days a week uh, plus two uh, human rights officers in geneva uh, funded that's it uh, you know no one in new york funded uh, which is where the you know where all of the counterterrorism activity happens um, there are then you know 46 un entities that are members of the the Global, uh, the UN Global Compact on on counterterrorism. All of them are doing bits and pieces of of human right uh, of counterterrorism as well. Now there are, of course, people doing bits and pieces of human rights within the UN counterterrorism bodies. I mean, there are human rights officers there, um, uh, and there's a you know a, a scattering of you know human rights expertise across the forty six UN UN agencies. But I think it goes to the point of the hugely disproportionate. Uh, emphasis on repressive security uh, law enforcement approaches uh, and really a kind of fairly perfunctory commitment to, to human rights and indeed civil society engagement in counterterrorism uh, in uh, in that process. And that's that's strange because, you know, the global counterterrorism strategy adopted by the, the General Assembly uh, in 2006 has uh, four pillars Two of those pillars are human rights So, you know, one is about um, uh, respect for human rights and the rule of law in countering terrorism. One is about addressing what's called the conditions conducive to terrorism or the, the root causes, in other words, which include uh, serious violations of human rights by states. Uh, but if you look at the programming and resourcing across the UN system, uh, those two pillars still receive uh, far less than uh, the kind of resources which go into the, the repressive pillars on uh, law enforcement and other kinds of restrictive measures, uh, and that's you know as we said you know at the, at the state level that's even even more pronounced in, in terms of uh, how there's such a focus on repression and resourcing of police, intelligence, security, military, 
uh, and very little fed into the the, the human rights uh, side of things. Uh, finally, I, I just say, look, I, I do think this is a really difficult global moment for human rights generally because of the the kind of political polarization we're seeing in this era of geopolitical competition because of the the, the explosion of conflicts involving all kinds of dehumanization often on both sides I think we we, we are seeing uh, great pressure on the human rights system generally uh, and uh, you know in those bits of human rights which are most sensitive and most difficult like like counterterrorism and you know uh, states seeing themselves as responsible for the security of their citizens and protecting the you know the lives of of, of their citizens um, it can be very hard to get that message to stick that the best way to ensure security is to protect the human rights of, of your citizens. But I think it is politically a, a, a very difficult time for human rights. Right. Right. And and given the moment in which we're recording this podcast and the moment in which you found yourself entering into your role as special rapporteur, I do want to end the conversation with your specific input on the current events in uh, Israel, Hamas. We touched on it a bit throughout the the conversation here, but how are you looking at the situation on the ground now and what aspects of the conflict do you think that you can play a role in helping to mitigate? So I should say at the outset that there is a, another special rapporteur on the Palestinian occupied territories. So she uh, naturally uh, has the has the lead on the, the conflict in Gaza and of course the, the explosion of violence in the West Bank uh, as well. Uh, you know, my role can, can, you know, I can play a role in, in supporting that work. I also have a, my, my own mandate, of course, in relation to counterterrorism measures in Israel proper. So, for example, expansion of uh, citizenship stripping laws in relation to, to terrorism uh, affecting predominantly uh, Arab Israelis in Israel, expansion of terrorist offences relating to the consumption of, of terrorist Publications, so just you know, having essentially possession uh, of of uh, of certain material uh, can now be can now be criminalised. So, you know, there there, there are those uh, those things going on as as well. Uh, look, my my message is um, predominantly this is a you know this is an armed conflict between Hamas as a as a non state armed group and 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 Israel. International humanitarian law is the key framework governing that conflict. The point of humanitarian law is to, to you know, provide a balance so that uh, military parties can can uh, effectively do what they need to do in, in fighting and, and winning wars, while at the same time ensuring that the suffering of civilians uh, and indeed of, of combatants is is uh, is minimised so far as so far as possible. Uh, look, there there have clearly been violations on on both sides. I, I mean, legally. Uh, what Hamas did is 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 in some ways easier because it was it was so blatant. I mean, war crimes of murder uh, on a large scale, hostage taking, um, sexual violence, uh, mutilation of corpses, indiscriminate firing of of rockets. You know, all of that is is fairly fairly clear cut. Uh, I mean, it still needs to be independently and impartially investigated, and uh, any criminal prosecutions have to be fair and before a, a proper process and and. Uh, you know, Israel is is currently thinking about potentially special models for the prosecution of of Hamas. So I think that's uh, an issue which 
needs to be watched very closely from a, a human rights and humanitarian law standpoint. Uh, on the Israeli side, you know, uh, a, a clear violation and ongoing violation of the the obligation to uh, allow and facilitate uh, humanitarian relief, all of the essential things uh, for civilian survival in Gaza, uh, like food, medicine, uh, water, sanitation, fuel, etc. Denial on such a large scale in the initial period of the conflict that it, it could well constitute the the war crime of starvation of of civilians. Um, uh, secondly, I think in terms of the conduct of hostilities, uh, the, the latest figures suggest 85% of Gazan civilians have been displaced from their homes. Uh, a majority of housing has been destroyed or, or damaged uh, in Gaza. Most civilian infrastructure is, is either destroyed or, or heavily damaged. Uh, sanitation, medical care, hospitals, um, I mean, uh, all of this is 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 barely functioning now in Gaza. I mean, the question for, in terms of assessing humanitarian law liabilities, uh, you know, on the one hand, of course, you know, Israel's conducted well over, I think uh, I saw one figure, over 11,000 strikes in Gaza. Uh, and so, you know, on one level, yes, of course, you need to know more about the targeting process involved in each and every one of those strikes. You know, what information was Israel relying on at the time? Did it take all feasible precautions to verify that the target was military and not civilian? Also, to verify that civilian casualties would not be excessive. Um, did they, you know, did they select a weapon which would not have indiscriminate effects in a densely populated uh, urban area? You know, so not using high explosive munitions where that's likely to, to collaterally uh, kill large numbers of, of civilians. Uh, so yes, I mean, yes, you need to know uh, in some ways more about that. On the other hand, at a kind of uh, meta level, uh, I mean, if you just look at the, the 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 sheer scale of destruction in such a short space of time, uh, and if you look at the kind of uh, ratio of uh, civilians to Hamas fighters, which seem to have been killed, I mean, one one figure I saw, and you know, all of this has to be taken with a grain of salt because we we, we don't really know with any accuracy, uh, figures about, for example, Hamas fighters that have been killed by, by Israel. But one figure I saw was, you know, 5,000 maybe Hamas fighters killed. I don't know if that's accurate. Uh, but overall, the, 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 the Palestinian figures suggest 15,000 people have been killed in, in Gaza. So that means for, uh, you know, every Hamas fighter, you're killing two civilians, right? Uh, and, you know, those Hamas fighters aren't necessarily, you know, most of them are, are, are not, you know, senior commanders. Most of them are just kind of uh, foot soldiers, etc. So you're, you're obliterating most of the civilian infrastructure of Gaza, destroying, you know, decades of, of development, uh, making two million people uh, essentially homeless, um, killing large numbers of, of civilians. It's, it's difficult to see how that does not involve disproportionate or, or excessive civilian casualties, uh, indiscriminate attacks through the use of high explosives dropped from the air, destroying, you know, uh, whole neighbourhoods, whole apartment blocks, uh, etc. And I think this is, this is clearly the assessment of uh, the United Nations. It's clearly the assessment of even Israel's closest Western partners like the United States. It's clear that Israel has not been taking sufficient care to protect civilians uh, in in prosecuting this war. Now, you know Israel has a right to protect its its people from from terrorist violence, but it, it has to do it in the right way. I mean, it it, it has to 
uh, instead of, you know, dropping bombs and flattening whole neighbourhoods from the air, you know, you do need troops on the ground to combat Hamas in a more targeted and discriminate fashion. And that does put Israeli forces at more risk, uh, but that is the price of respecting humanitarian laws uh, obligations to duly weight the value of civilian lives uh, and to protect them from unnecessary violence. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for your services, Special Rapporteur. My pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, talking with me, Heymin. Much appreciated. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osmond of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.